a pleasant Sabbath to each of you. And it's good to be back at Patton of the Sabbath. And I just want to say um, as well that I've personally been blessed by Michael's ministry here at Patna and his Sabbath school classes that I've attended, so we will certainly miss you and wish God's blessing on you as you go to Texas. Um, it's, it's definitely a blessing to be here this Sabbath morning, and I'm looking forward to sharing a few things with you. Before we get into our message, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for this Sabbath day. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to consider the message for our time. And I pray that you will give us a special blessing this Sabbath morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How many of you are thankful to be Seventh-day Adventists? Amen. amen. And why are you thankful to be an Adventist? Is it because of the friends that we have at church? And that's a good thing. Is it because we get a day off when the rest of the world gets no rest? Is that why you're thankful to be a Seventh-day Adventist? I mean, that's a nice thing, too. I mean, you think about it. If you live the health message and live to be 90, 95 years old, one of the reasons you, you live longer is because you've had an extra day of rest every week for years. So that's a blessing. But is that why we are thankful to be Seventh-day Adventists? I would again say today, the reason why we are thankful to be Seventh-day Adventists is because of the message that God has given to us. How many of you are thankful for the message of Adventism? Amen. That's why we are here today. Now, the rest of the Christian world understands that Jesus died for us, and that is the foundation of Christianity and of Adventism. However, we have a complete understanding of Scripture that helps us to understand the message for this hour. Now, do you think the message for this hour is important? Amen. What about our message for this hour is important? The crucial aspect of our message for this time is that we have a message of warning announcing that the judgment hour has come, that Jesus is coming soon, and that if you are not on the right side at the end, you will be lost. What we are going to look at today is, how is it that so many people in the Christian world are deceived? What is it that leads people to only ex accept part of Scripture and not all of Scripture as truth that guides us into a complete and full Christian life? And the title for my message today is The Synagogue of Satan. It's an interesting concept. We saw in our passage, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let's read that. Where Jesus says to the church of Smyrna, And under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. 
And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now the question is, who is Jesus talking about when he says, there are people who say they are Jews, but they really aren't. They're actually the synagogue of Satan. Well, first of all, who are these people that are saying they are Jews? Are these literal Jews? How do we know that? Well, if, you, if we look at this message, now the message to the church of Smyrna is to the second of the seven churches of Revelation. And how many of us have studied the, the seven churches, the message to the seven churches? So, so what we see, you have seven churches, and briefly, the first four churches deteriorate from Ephesus, then you have Smyrna to Pergamos to Thyatira. Now, it is true that Smyrna as the second church receives no rebuke, but there are people in the church of Smyrna that are actually the synagogue of Satan. So you have Ephesus, the first church, which is the church of the first century, which was doctrinally pure, but they loved their first love. Then you have the church of Smyrna, which went through tribulation, and they had people in their midst which were of the synagogue of Satan. Smyrna was from about 180 to 313 AD. Then you have the church of Pergamos from 313 to 538. This is the church of compromise. And then Thyatira, beginning in 538, the fourth church, that is the church of papal Rome. And then you have Sardis, which was the leftover remnants of the Reformation. Then you have Philadelphia, the Millerite movement. Then you have Laodicea, which is the Advent movement. That's a brief overview. Now, in the church of Smyrna, which is from 100 to 313 AD, you have a group of people who say they are Jews, but they're not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, one way to solve the problem, are these literal Jews or are they not, is to just use some common sense. People know if you're an American or if you're not, right? You can say you're an American, but if you can't speak English or Spanish, chances are you may not be an American. You can say you're Trinidadian, but if you don't know who the prime minister is and if you don't know what roti is, you may just not be Trinidadian. <laughs> and for the record, I'm not Trinidadian, but I do like roti. Okay. <clears throat> These people said they were Jews, but clearly they were not. Now, everyone knew who a literal Jew was. But let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29 to understand who these people were claiming to be. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. And this is a familiar passage. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is what Christ is saying to the church of Smyrna. There are some of you who claim to be Jews, or you claim to be Abraham's spiritual seed, or you claim to be Christians, but in reality, you are not. You are of the synagogue of Satan. 
Now, this is a serious charge by Christ, but Christ does not lie. The Bible says Christ does not lie, amen? amen. Christ is saying these people claim to be Christians, but in reality, they are of the synagogue of Satan. Did you realize that Satan has a religious body of believers that follow him? The Bible teaches, according to Christ, that there is a synagogue of Satan, and it showed up in the church of Smyrna beginning around 100 AD. Now you may say, well, the synagogue of Satan was a group of people way back from 100 to 313, and we don't have to worry about the synagogue of Satan anymore. Is that true? Let's go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, to the church of Philadelphia. And the two things that Philadelphia and Smyrna have in common, they received no rebuke from Christ, and they both had people who said they were Jews, but were really of the synagogue of Satan. Revelation 3, verse 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now, I don't have time to go through every church and explain all the details, but the bottom line with the church of Philadelphia is that this was the church from 1798 to 1844, which consisted of the preaching of the Advent movement culminating in the Millerite movement from 1833 to 1844. The people who accepted the Advent message were the Philadelphian church, and they received no rebuke from Christ. The people who rejected the message of the Advent message constituted the synagogue of Satan. They said, yes, we are Christians. We love Jesus. And when William Miller came along and said, Jesus is coming in 10 years, they said, oh, no. He's not coming for another thousand years. We don't want Jesus to come. And so Jesus says they say they are Jews. They say they are Christians, but they are not. And notice one other thing that Jesus says here in the message to Philadelphia that he doesn't say to, lay it to, to Smyrna. He says those who say they are Jews and are not, he says they do lie. Now, he didn't say that in Smyrna, but he says that here in Philadelphia. So to say that you're something, but you really aren't, is to lie. You say you're a Christian, but you're really not. You're a liar. Now, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say anything about those who lie to give us an, some kind of an understanding of what it means to be a liar in a spiritual sense? I would invite you to turn with me. To 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says, He that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So notice what we have here. People say, I know Christ. He is my Savior. But you know what? Because he died for me, I don't need to keep his commandments anymore. The Bible says, you don't know him. You're a liar. 
So here you have in the church of Smyrna from 100 to 313 AD and the church of Philadelphia from 1798 to 1844, people who say they are Christians, but in reality they are liars. And not only are they liars, not only are they not Christians, they are actually the synagogue of Satan. Now the question is, how is it that the synagogue of Satan developed in the early Christian church. Were there teachings during that time period that led to the development of a religious body that Satan had full control over? And you know, that's a, a scary thought to realize. We could be claiming to be Christians but if we aren't following the truths of Scripture, we could in reality be liars, not really be Christians, and actually be of the synagogue of Satan. So we want to study the Bible to see what is it that constituted the synagogue of Satan. Now, if you look at the seven churches, when you come to Ephesus, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, Ephesus is commended for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, what do we know about the Nicolaitans? Who were the Nicolaitans? Well, I'm going to read a couple of things to you just to give some historical context. In the Bible commentary, in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, volume 7, page 745, it says, the adherents of this sect appear to have taught that deeds of the flesh do not affect the purity of the soul and consequently have no bearing on salvation. So here's what's happening. In the first century church of Ephesus, Ephesus was doctrinally pure. Now they left their first love. But one thing that Christ commended them for was they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Christ says, I'm glad you do because I hate those deeds as well. These people taught that you can do whatever you want doesn't matter, as long as you accept Jesus as your Savior, you can still be saved. And specifically, they taught that fornication was okay. They said it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They said it was okay to do whatever you want, and you can still be saved. And Christ said that I hate these deeds. Now, Ellen White says some things about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans as well. This is Review and Herald, June 7, 1887. She says, and she asks it in a question form, Is it our sin, the sin of the Nicolaitans, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness? Now, is there a place in the Bible that talks about turning the grace of God into lasciviousness? It's found in the book of Jude, verses 3 and 4. Turn to the book of Jude, verses 3 and 4. And here it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Jude is saying, I was going to just write to you about salvation, but I need to earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints because something has gone wrong in the Christian church. What has gone wrong? Verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Notice what happens. Jude is writing about this in the book of Jude. He was going to write about salvation. But the Holy Spirit says, no, you need to earnestly contend for the faith because there are people in the church that are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, the word lascivious means licentious or filthy. And, you know, Paul contended with this very same thing. He said, what shall we say then? Well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? People were saying, the more you sin, the more God's grace abounds. They were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The greater your sin, the greater your grace. It doesn't matter if you keep sinning. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior. You can just go on and on and on in your sins, and God's grace will cover you. And Jesus says, I hate these deeds. Jude says, we must earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Paul says, God forbid that we should continue in sin. Ellen White says some more about this doctrine. Signs of the Times, January 2, 1912. The doctrine is now largely taught that the gospel of Christ has made the law of God of no effect. Have you heard that before? The gospel of Christ has made the law of God of no effect. That by believing, we are released from the necessity of being doers of the word. Now notice what she says. But this is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Christ so unsparingly condemned. So people say the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus died for our sins. He has released us from keeping the law. Praise the Lord, we accept him as our savior and we don't have to keep the law anymore. He was the end of the law. We don't have to keep it. She says, this is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and that is turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And one more quote. This is from Bible, Bible Echo, February 8, 1897. She quotes hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and then she says, those who are teaching this doctrine, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, today have much to say in regard to faith and the righteousness of Christ. Does the Christian world like to talk about righteousness by faith? Absolutely. They say you accept Jesus as your Savior by faith, and many of them say, and that's all you have to do. You can keep on sinning. So they like to talk about faith and the righteousness of Christ, but they pervert the truth and make it serve the cause of error. They declare that we have only to believe on Jesus Christ and that faith is all sufficient, that the righteousness of Christ is to be the sinner's credentials, that this imputed righteousness fulfills the law for us, and that we are under no obligation to obey the law of God. Does this sound familiar? This class claim that Christ came to save sinners and that he has saved them. I am saved, they will repeat over and over again. But are they saved while transgressing the law of Jehovah? No. For the garments of Christ's righteousness are not a cloak for iniquity. Such teaching is a gross deception. And Christ becomes to these persons a stumbling block as he did to the Jews. To the Jews because they would not receive him as their personal savior to these professed believers in Christ because they separate Christ and the law and regard faith as a substitute for obedience. They separate the Father and the Son, the Savior of the world. Virtually they teach, both by precept and example, that Christ by his death saves men in their transgressions. So here you have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Christ did it all. 
we don't have to do anything. If we sin, if we break the law, doesn't really matter because we've accepted him as our savior. He covers us with his righteousness. We keep on sinning, but praise the Lord, we are saved. And yet, scripture condemns this as turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Ellen White also clearly condemns this. Now, what was the effect on the Christian church when this doctrine came into Christianity. Now, the church of Ephesus, which went up to 100 AD, totally hated this doctrine, and they condemned it and kept it from entering in the church, and Christ commended them for it. But then when you get to the church of Smyrna, you find that you have a group of liars who say they are Christians, but they really aren't, they are of the synagogue of Satan, and we see that according to the Bible, liars are those who say they know Christ, but don't keep his commandments. So now by the time we get to the church of Smyrna, this is the persecuted church. There were people in the Christian church who claimed to be Christians who were breaking the commandments, which is in essence the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, as you see the progression, as the church becomes worse, when you get to the church of Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, specifically verse 15, you see that the church of Pergamos now holds the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Christ hates. And the doctrine of the, Nic or the church of Pergamos, again, was from 313 to 538. Now, what happened during that era of the church? It was during that era of the church that Christians said, hey, we're just saved by accepting Jesus as our Savior. What we do can't save us, so therefore what we do can't cause us to lose our salvation. So if we really want to reach the pagans around us, we should present a Christian message that is more attractive to them. We can tell the pagans, hey, you know what? You can accept the Jesus that we preach about, and you can keep living the way you're living. You can join our Christian church. Now, you can keep doing those things that the Bible condemns, but the thing is, is the Bible doesn't understand grace. That was before Christ came. Now that Christ has come, he's released you from the law, so you can do whatever you want and still be a Christian. And then what happened was the Christians said, well, you know, the majority of the world, their day of rest is the venerable day of the sun. If we're going to reach the rest of the world, we should change our day of worship so that we can reach more people. That will make our Christian message more attractive to the pagan world who already accepts Sunday as a sacred day. And so, you know, I know the Bible says that the seventh day is the Sabbath, but again, if we accept Christ as our Savior, it doesn't really matter if we keep the Ten Commandments because we've accepted Him. And so what happened then? The church changes the Sabbath to Sunday. They accept many of the pagan practices. The pagan idols came into the Christian church. And so then you get to the church of Thyatira, Thyatira, the fourth church, 
And you'll notice in verse 20 of Revelation 2, you have this woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and seduces God's servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. You know what teaching people to commit fornication and sacrificing idols is? That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so guess what church was the church of Thyatira? Papal Rome. So guess how Papal Rome developed? It was through the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans teaches Christ has released us from keeping the law. Therefore, we can do whatever we want and still be saved. So when Christians develop that mentality, then they say, well, if we can do whatever we want and still be saved, then we can reach the whole world with the gospel that if you just accept Jesus, you'll be saved even if you keep sinning. And if we're going to reach more people, we can change the law of God, we can change the day of worship, and we can make Christianity more attractive to the world. And so through the centuries, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans evolved and had an effect on Christianity so that it went from being a pure apostolic church that lived by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God, that kept the law of God, that preached the law of God, that preached Christ, that kept the Sabbath, into a church that had completely compromised and had become like the world around it. And of course, we know the period of Thyatira, or of Papal Rome, is the era known as the Dark Ages. Now, you may be wondering, well, we know that Papal Rome became affected by this teaching. What's the big deal? Well, first of all, what we saw in the message to the Church of Smyrna is that Christ said there were people who claimed to be Jews, but in reality, they were of the synagogue of Satan. You realize that Revelation 13.2 says that Satan, or the dragon, gave his power, seat, and authority to papal Rome? So here is one of the key points. The synagogue of Satan was the professed Christian church who went against the word of God. And in the church of Smyrna, it was those who said, we don't have to keep the commandments. And by the time we get to the church of Thyatira, the synagogue of Satan was papal Rome. Now, then you may be saying, well, we know that Satan or the dragon gave us power, seat, and authority to papal Rome. Now, what's another prophetic term for papal Rome? It's called Babylon, right? Papal Rome is Babylon. You may be saying, well, papal Rome is, is the seat of Satan. It's the synagogue of Satan, but we're not part of that. And amen, we are not. We are not Babylon. But remember how we talked about the church of Philadelphia? Let's talk about that again. Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, where Jesus says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. 
Now, who is Christ speaking about here when he speaks about the synagogue of Satan? They say they are Jews. They say they are Christians, but they are not. But they do lie. In this era, the Millerites came preaching the soon coming of Christ. And many Christians accepted this message. They constituted the Church of Philadelphia. But many Christians rejected the message. And here's what happened. The idea that Jesus was coming in 10 years, or 5 years, or 3 years, was not a very pleasant thought. Now let's ask ourselves the question, and let's make this practical and real to us. If we knew that Jesus was coming, let's say next year, publicly as Seventh-day Adventists, we would all say, praise the Lord, Jesus is coming soon, in, within a year. But in, and deep down in our hearts, what would we really be thinking? Oh no, I'm not going to be able to finish school by then. I won't have that degree that I've been working so hard on. Or, oh no, I, I haven't had a chance to get married yet. Oh no, no, no. I mean, I want Jesus to come, but not right now. Maybe five years. By the time I finish school, gotten married, had a child, then I'll really have experienced life on this earth, and then Jesus can come. Do we think that way sometimes? If we do, do we really love Jesus? Because when he comes, he will come for those who love his appearing. Not those who will be inconvenienced by his soon return. And here you had a group of people who said, we are Christians, we love Jesus. And the message came, Jesus is coming soon. And they said, oh no, not now. Later. Please, not now. And Jesus said, you are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, we've already seen that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which says you can do whatever you want and still be saved, led to the development of papal Rome, which is Babylon. You know, Ellen White says that all the churches that rejected the message of the coming of Christ in the summer of 1844 became part of Babylon, which is why the second angel's message says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, to denote that papal Rome has fallen and the fallen Protestant churches are fallen. And you know what that means? Not only is papal Rome part of the synagogue of Satan, but the fallen Protestant churches are also the synagogue of Satan. Now, before I make too many people upset, it is true that God has his people in Babylon who don't know any better, and we have a message of warning to call them out. That's why we have the three angels' messages, because God has his true believers who don't know that right now they are in Babylon, the synagogue of Satan, and we have a message of warning and mercy to call them out. And now more than ever is not the time to say, oh, let's just all get along and say we're all Christians. No, we need to call them out and pluck them as brands from the fire. Because if they stay there, when the mark of the beast comes, they will be lost. We have a message of warning to give them. 
And so here we see from Scripture, the synagogue of Satan developed through the false understanding of a righteousness by faith, which allows you to do whatever you want and still be saved. That developed the synagogue of Satan, the seed of Satan, as papal Rome through the Dark Ages, the glorious Protestant Reformation, which brought a renewed understanding of righteousness by faith, fell short by the time that the message of the second coming of Christ came, because in reality, many of the Protestant churches, after having a true understanding of righteousness by faith, went back to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and said, we can be saved in our sins. And you can study that in the history of the Protestant movements. Now, where does that leave us today? Because after the Philadelphian church, you have the Laodicean church. And what you see is that Satan has had control over papal Rome since hundreds of years ago, many centuries ago. He's had his influence on the Protestant churches since 1844. And if you don't believe me, notice what Ellen White says in early writings, pages 54 to 56. Here she says, before the throne I saw the Advent people, the church in the world. I saw two companies, one bowed down before the throne, deeply interested, while the other stood uninterested and careless. Those who were bowed before the throne would offer up their prayers and look to Jesus. Then he would look to his Father and appear to be pleading with him. A light would come from the Father and the Son to the Son and from the Son to the praying company. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from the Father to the Son, and from the Son it waved over the people before the throne. Now, what she says next is, is our understanding of what happened in 1844. She shows that the Father and then the Son moved from the holy place to the most holy place. We believe that that's what happened in 1844, amen? Now, notice what happened to the people who didn't move with Christ and the Father. Some did. Some moved to the most holy place and they continued to receive light. Notice what happens to those who stayed in the holy place. She says, I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne. They did not know that Jesus had left it. Satan appeared to be by the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Now notice this. Satan would then breathe upon them an unholy influence. In it there was much light, in it there was light and much power, but no sweet love, joy, and peace. Satan's object was to keep them deceived and to draw back and to deceive God's children. You see what happened in 1844? Those who rejected the message of the second advent stayed in the holy place, where up until that time that was the place to be. When they stayed there, Satan became their leader and they didn't even know it. And they became part of the synagogue of Satan. And again, there are many of God's true believers in Babylon that we are to call out. But Babylon is Babylon. And we need to not be ashamed to call Babylon out for what it really is. Babylon is Babylon, and Babylon has been given its power, seat, and authority from Satan. And Babylon, as a set of believers, constitutes the synagogue of Satan through whom Satan wields his power over this earth. And God has set up 
this last day remnant church to be the contrast to the synagogue of Satan here on this earth, to be the voice that proclaimed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, to point people to the soon return of Christ. Now the question is, has Satan tried to make inroads with his false doctrines into the Seventh-day Adventist church? Now, let me be clear before I say anything else. Ellen White is crystal clear that the Seventh-day Adventist church has never been Babylon, is not Babylon, and never will be Babylon. Okay? Amen? The Seventh-day Adventist church is not Babylon. What we want to look at, though, is has Satan brought in tares among the wheat? since our beginnings in 1844. <clears throat> when we look at our history, we can see, unfortunately, that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans has made inroads into Adventism. Back in the 1950s, a book was published by Seventh-day Adventists, and some of you may know the history of this, some of you may not. The name of the book was Questions on Doctrine. And the purpose of this book was to assure Christians of other denominations that we were not a cult. Now, there's one major problem with that kind of an approach. From scripture and from history and from prophecy, we see that all other Christian denominations in reality, are Babylon and constitute the synagogue of Satan. Now, how do you think the other churches are going to feel when they come to us and say, now, we want to make sure you're not a cult. We want to make sure that you're Christian brothers with us. And we tell them, you are part of the fallen churches of Babylon. So what happened was, in this book, Questions on Doctrine, the great majority of it defended our faith, including the Sabbath, the state of the dead, the sanctuary, and did a very fine job on those points. But in the area with respect to what constitutes Babylon, what is the remnant, and then some key areas regarding righteousness by faith, specifically the human nature of Christ, the nature of sin, and the atonement, we changed the biblical historical understanding of some of our positions. Now, not all Adamists did, but the people who wrote the book did. And they said that Christ was like Adam before the fall. Now, Adamists had always understood that Christ was like Adam after the fall. And Ellen White makes that clear in Desire of Ages, page 49, that it would have been an almost infinite humiliation for Christ to be like Adam before the fall, but he took the nature of man after it had been affected by 4,000 years of sin. That's very clear. Now, what happened with the result of this teaching is Adamus started saying, well, before this, Adamus said, Christ is our example, amen? And we still believe that. Christ is our example. He showed us how to live a righteous life by faith in humanity here on this earth. But with this new understanding that the rest of the Christian world accepts, they said, Christ really wasn't like us, so he really wasn't in our example. And in reality, the only thing that saves us is the covering of his righteousness, and we really can't have victory. That's basically the result of questions on doctrine. And so what happened was a 
popular theologian came along, and some of you may know this history, Desmond Ford came along in the 1970s and said, you know, the only thing that saves you is justification, and justification is only an outward covering, and inwardly you're still sinning all the time. And you know what? That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's, but that's what Desmond Ford taught. And you know, Desmond Ford said, and here's the thing, because the only thing that saves us is the outward covering of Christ's righteousness, this whole idea of an investigative judgment makes no sense. So let's throw that out. Jesus didn't really go into the most holy place in 1844 because the only thing that saves us is the covering of his righteousness, so why do we need a judgment? And so what you have is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And of course, Desmond Ford lost his credentials. The General Conference removed his credentials, so the church did not go along with what Desmond Ford was saying. But here you see attempts by Satan to try to bring in false doctrines into God's remnant church. Now, one of Desmond Ford's cute sayings, I like to call them cute sayings, they aren't cute really, but he would say, you don't have to be good to be saved, but you have to be saved to be good. Well, what does that mean? And so, not, and he would say, you know, justification is 100% God's work, but sanctification is 50% man's work and 50% God's work. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says that God sanctifies us wholly or completely. So sanctification is also 100% God's work. Now, many people in the church, although it was not condoned by the leadership of the church, many people within the church said this is the most beautiful presentation of the gospel we've ever seen. So what was the effect of the church? Well, Similar to what happened back in the time when the Nicolaitans brought their church, brought their doctrine to Christianity. Adventists started saying, well, look, if the only thing that saves us is the covering of Christ's righteousness, and it really doesn't matter what we do, we should start to change our worship style to appeal to the world around us. So they'll feel more ex like they can fit in in our church services. Because, I mean, the only thing that saves us is Jesus dying on the cross. So we just need to talk about Jesus. Let's not talk about doctrine. And let's make the world around us feel accepted in our church services. And so that's what started happening in the 1980s. And I mean, I was alive and saw it with my own eyes. Back in the United States, we started having churches that were called Celebration Church. Celebration, celebration churches. It was like going to a, a rock club or a nightclub on Sabbath morning. And you couldn't tell the difference if you were in a nightclub or a church. The only difference is they would talk about Jesus during the sermon. But other than that, it was like going to a nightclub. And that continued. Now, what has happened since then, people have said, you know, we worship like the other churches, and, and you realize that the celebration worship style is basically just borrowed from the fallen churches of Babylon or the synagogue of Satan. You realize that, right? And so what we said then is like, well, look, we believe the same way that the fallen churches of Babylon believe. Of course, they're not calling them the fallen churches. We believe like all of our other brothers and sisters. We all believe in Jesus. We worship the same way. We're all covered by his grace. We all keep sinning. We have the same type of worship services. So let's go to them to see even more 
what they are doing that is so effective to attract people. And you know, Ted Wilson talked about this in his sermon of the General Conference, these mega churches that are built on faulty theology. One of the things that has been coming into these mega churches has been what's called the emerging church movement. And to be brief, I'm going to wrap up here in the next couple of minutes. The emerging church movement is teaching New Age spiritualism type teachings. They are teaching different kinds of prayer where the way you pray to God is the exact same way that New Age spiritualists pray to Buddha or whoever. And that's coming into certain churches. Now, the majority of churches are not, and again, our general conference president clearly condemned it based on what scripture teaches. But you see how Satan is making inroads. And so a polarization is beginning to take place in our church so that there are some people in our church that are saying, you know, why do we have to preach distinctive messages about the Sabbath, the sanctuary, the three angels' messages, that the churches out there are Babylon? We need to be more loving and accepting. We need to stop sheep stealing. We're all Christians. And people really do say that. Where I came from, we heard that all the time. They would say, if you, if you take someone from a Baptist church and bring them into an Adventist church, that's sheep stealing. Adventists would say that. Because we all accept Jesus. It really doesn't matter if you go to church on Sabbath or Sunday. We just accept Jesus. But that is what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans has done to many people. Now guess what's going to happen when the final crisis comes? Many people who have accepted this teaching are going to be shaken out. Now, we want to be those who remain. Amen? Amen. And God's church is going to go through. People see the trouble in the church and they say, you know, this church is hopeless, I'm leaving. No. Ellen White makes it clear the church may appear as a willful, but it will not. The church will go through. But you know what? The church that goes through is not going to be the church that is teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The church that goes through is not going to be teaching you can still be sinning while you're saved and Jesus will come to save people like you. The church that goes through is not going to be a church that looks like a nightclub. The church that goes through is not going to be a church that has brought in satanic spiritualism into the church. The church that goes through is going to be the church that preaches the three angels' messages with power. And the third angel's message that is preached with power, you can find it in Revelation 18, starting in verse 1, where this angel comes down from heaven having great power. The earth is lightened with its glory. And you know what the message is of that angel? Babylon the great. The synagogue of Satan is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. You know how popular that message is going to be when it comes down and hits the earth with power? The rest of the Christian world is saying, how dare you call us the synagogue of Satan? We worship Christ. And yet the third angel's message with power is going to say, the Christian world is Babylon. The Christian world has become the synagogue of Satan. They follow Satan, not Christ. 
They say you can break the law of God and still be saved. They say you can worship God however you want and still be saved. They say you can eat however you want and still be saved. They say you can even bring satanic principles into your worship style and pray to a God that is not the true God and still be saved. And the third angel's message with power will not only be the message of righteousness by faith, but it will be proclaiming that Babylon is fallen. And Babylon will be enraged by this message, and they will go out to persecute the messengers of this message. And let me tell you something. If you're afraid to preach the truth now, what are you going to do when the persecution comes at the end? When you read Daniel 11, 44 and 45, the king of the north, which is Babylon, they go forth with great fury to utterly destroy and make away many when the loud cry hits. And I believe with all of my heart that we are living on the cusp of the outpouring of the latter rain when this message is going to go forth with power. If we are going to give this message with power, we cannot be confused by a false gospel that teaches that we can be saved in our sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And when we as a people live the message of righteousness by faith, God is going to pour out his spirit in latter rain proportions to give us power to proclaim to the world that Babylon, the synagogue of Satan, is fallen. And my brothers and sisters, it is time as Seventh-day Adventists to stop going to the fallen churches of Babylon to learn how to grow churches. It's, stopped, it's time to stop going to the synagogue of Satan to learn what gets them to get 5,000 people to come out on Sunday morning. We don't need 5,000 people on Sunday morning who still live a degenerate life apart from the power of Christ. We need a faithful few who will live the life of Christ here on this earth now. God doesn't need the whole world. The Bible tells us that all the world is going to wander after the beast or Babylon or the synagogue of Satan. The great majority of the world is going to wander after the beast. All God needs is a remnant of believers the 144,000 who will be faithful to the biblical message, to the everlasting gospel that has never changed, that God died for our sins through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, and that he gives us power to be free from sin here on this earth, and that when he has a group of people who are like that, he will come to claim them as his own. And I pray that those of us here at Patna will have that experience, that God will use Patna to be a shining light here in Trinidad. That we, in this church, will give the three angels messages with power to a lost and dying world because this message is gonna go out everywhere. It's gonna go out throughout the United States, throughout Trinidad, throughout Asia and Europe and Australia, and we wanna be part of it when the earth is lightened with its glory, amen? amen? So may we be faithful to the Adventist message. May we shun any worldly trends in our worship style, in our faith experience that would cause us to be primed in our minds to receive the mark of the beast when the last crisis comes to this world. May we be faithful by God's grace. This is my prayer. Amen.